Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the independent politics and media podcast from New Zealand. I am joined by my co-host Philip Nanestad. Uh, recently, mostly uh, recovered from COVID. How you doing, mate? Uh, yeah, I'm mostly recovered, but still testing positive. So, according to our uh, wondrous fine mesh comb system of safety, I can, as long as I feel uh, better, I can reinfect anyone I want. So, watch out at the at the clubs tonight. I'll be there. If you see if you see a stranger to your left, to your right, that's me, um, coughing into my armpit. Um, just be careful. Keep your drinks covered, but not for the regular reason you would at a bar, because I'll be coughing into it. Ah, oh, disgusting. Thank you. Um, remember as well that if you become asymptomatic, don't rat test before going to visit your vulnerable family members. Yeah, that's the key, right? That's the key. That's the key because um, that'll deplete the workforce. And we're also joined uh, by political outreach coordinator for People Against Prisons, Aotearoa Finlay. How's it going? It's good. It's good. I... Well, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Hey. It's okay. Okay. In November, you're, you're doing well. It is December, but yes. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> okay. In December, you're doing even better. Exactly. <laughs> Breaking news on the podcast. <laughs> Kyle just realized what month it is. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll know that I did a what the fuck is December post like two days ago. Uh, and clearly I'm more unhinged than I thought I was. So got a little bit of stuff to cover today. Uh, but let's kick off with the New Zealand poll uh, moment of note uh, all across your socials um, and all across the major media networks of the entire planet. Um, we had the Finnish Prime Minister down here in New Zealand visiting uh, Jacinda Ardern to go shopping, uh, among other activities, uh, apparently. Um, and when asked about uh, those activities by a News Talk ZB journalist, it all went horribly wrong. Did anyone else see this live? No. no, I didn't see it live. And by and by no, I don't mean I didn't. I mean no one else did. You were the only person. There's only <laughs> what, six nerds in the country watching that. Live. Um, you immediately knew that it was going to be one of those um, moments where, you know, I don't saying is it um, about the question uh, whether people should use bleach as a anti-COVID measure because the response from both Ardern and the Finnish Prime Minister was just textbook standard. Essentially what happened for, for those who are unplugged from the New Zealand media environment uh, and every major news outlet in the world uh, is that uh, a journalist from a, what you call News Talk ZB centre-right. Um, At least, that's, yeah. it's one of our furthest right mainstream news organisations. Mainstream news organisations, yeah, still mainstream. Um, I do want to be clear about that. They're not like one of the kind of more extremist uh, organisations we have here. Uh, they have like some really good followings uh, for some of their shows. There certainly wasn't an outlier, I guess is the point I want to make. Yeah, this dude uh, got the chance to ask a question of the of the two prime ministers and asked whether they were, <laughs> whether she was visiting, whether the Finnish prime minister was visiting and they were having uh, these meetings between New Zealand and Finland because they were the same age and stuff, um, kind of alluding to the fact that they were both young female prime ministers. Uh, and basically got laughed out of the room um, uh, insofar as uh, prime ministers are liable to do that from the podium. 
uh, both of them came back with a no we we need to like have a good relationship we're quite like similar countries uh we have like a good economic history together uh these are the things we actually uh, had to talk about and it kind of sat for a few hours and slowly started building on New Zealand uh, poll on Twitter like who the fuck is this guy um like this question is misogynistic did he even like write this beforehand or did he try and do this off the cuff because the wording is horrific I think by the end of the day he deleted his Twitter it's one of those things in New Zealand media where something is like it's clearly bad right like it's, it was clearly a bad question um it was clearly like a good semi-dunking response from the, the prime ministers but I think something that at least initially was being missed is that it was a question indicative um, of the general malaise of the press pack in New Zealand and this isn't the first time this has happened this is just the one that happened to go viral what were um your initial responses to it when, once it had come across your feeds um yeah I at first, I thought I'll ignore this and it'll disappear. And I still think it will. It'll, it'll be gone by, um, you know, before Christmas is generous, but probably by next week, there'll be something bigger to talk about. Because Jacinda Ardern's amazing at this, right? This is where she she really thrives when there's a perception that she's being underestimated and someone's being misogynistic towards her. Like the the spike in personal popularity for Jacinda Ardern after the Mark Richardson um, attack years ago, right? This is like her specialty is taking down people who uh whether or not they do perceive are perceived to be uh being misogynistic and chauvinistic and patronizing towards her um and i do think it was an implicitly misogynistic and dumb question to ask but the you know it's not a particularly interesting story like this this doesn't happen that irregularly from the less experienced kind of members of press packs and uh sana marin the Finnish Prime Minister has had like a similar history with that um, as Finland's youngest Prime Minister um, and a, a woman who has been like similarly had that weaponized against her, has had the kind of centre-right wearing a suit but in a dumb way press asking her these kind of meaningless sideline questions. Um, and because she's also extremely capable and has a great kind of turn of phrase and great rhetoric can similarly kind of bat them away. It was interesting that like Jacinda Ardern's defensive personality when she was put on on the spot for that, when she got the, the opportunity to dunk, her dunk was very like numbers heavy. She was very like, here's, I, I will rattle off 15 facts I memorized just before walking onto this podium. Like that's her power move. Um, and it works extremely well, right? That's her, that's her thing, her grasp of detail and kind of international relations is really powerful and Santa Marin was much more kind of I don't know if it's uh generalizing to say but much more like Finnish much more like Norse in the way that she approached it she was like no the reason we are meeting is because we are prime ministers <laughs> which I loved like if you think it's unusual that we're both uh women of a similar age wait till you see what we do for a living like statistically that's way less likely to have two people who do the same job at the same mm -hmm. place etc um which I loved. I thought that was very cool. But yeah, the like the defensiveness of the of the press back, I think, is the interesting thing from like a, a nerdy kind of media analysis point, right? So there have been a few, even of the most experienced media, media types, journalists, producers, uh, writers, etc. I guess defending in a in a kind of anti quote unquote cancel culture way, uh saying don't don't bully this person 
for asking a bad a bad question which gets back to the like what is soft power like how do, how do the kind of wisdom of the crowd interact with someone in a high uh high exposure environment doing their job badly in like a misogynistic inept inept way um so that gets back to like conversations i've had before on this podcast about saying that to the extent which i think is a, a great extent that like what people mean when they say cancel culture in the 21st century is an extension of like soft power used beyond what we personally see as reasonable so like bullying essentially it's the same thing as bullying it's like yelp for humans um and it has all the same like benefits and disadvantages of that so like if the mob doesn't like what you do and like from the left we should be clear that very often the mob doesn't like what we do um <laughs> then we need to be like defensive we're highly popular Philip, all the time i mean Everyone. our podcast is uh, rated extremely well um this year but other than other than us uh, individuals might be said to have less than popular takes um and to that extent you need defenses against the against the the hoi polloi <laughs> you know um yeah so i think it's to that extent it makes sense but the all of the defenses i've seen from uh journalists and from the kind of centrist liberal wellington beltway types uh to the extent that they're willing to go out on a limb it usually seems to be like uh oh don't be mean to this individual it's not about this individual right this this is a tiny like insight into what bullying looks like so this guy um joey badass he he asked a a question that i i think was definitely misogynistic and a bad call and probably was a riff right it probably wasn't written down because he was clearly making it up on the spot and it's true that like i personally wouldn't want to see someone fired for messing that up that's not the point, right? That's not a structural answer to a to a question of bullying in the workplace. We, we need to be talking about like unions and defenses against bosses. So if this does continue to stay viral for more than a couple of weeks and the bosses at Newstalk ZB want to do a quote unquote like clean house um, and replace some of their young male reporters with um, misogynistic women reporters, then, you know, that the defense that he needs to have is a, is a union and um, employment rights. Sorry to make a, a funny topic into a boring <laughs> Fuck you, man. I mean, I think also part of it is that, I mean, it's not as though other members of the press haven't asked misogynistic questions or haven't written, you know, articles about how, like, oh, do we really need, um, like, honorary doctorates when Cinder oh, Ardern's getting them? And, like, that sort of thing. It's like, like, he did it badly. Like, if he was able to word this question in a way that wasn't so obviously, like, stupid i think he probably would have gotten away with it a lot more it just wasn't like he didn't cover it at all it was just like oh you're you know the same age and yeah it's not unique i guess it's not like this is the only person who's ever said anything misogynistic or asked anything stupid but yeah still has a job right there's plenty of yeah. like solidly consistently misogynistic experienced senior journalists and new zealand reporters whatever you want to call them um like take havers <laughs> yeah who manage to stay on air or in print every week week on week writing like just more carefully kind of curated misogyny um and that's not you know the press council's never going to do anything about that no one's ever going to kind of complain about them and they get great ratings so the bosses aren't going to be mad at them so I, I guess that's why i think it's interesting is that like it takes a slip like that mm. for people to go oh it's the like that means it's the wording that's the problem right it's not the misogyny because there's 
that's across the across the yeah. board. Like if you wanted to address it systemically, we wouldn't be talking about Joe Badass. We'd be talking about like what standards there are and how do we structurally address that at different levels and uh, is there mentoring between different fields and how are these questions written and I haven't seen any of that to be honest no because it's not out there because we don't mm-hmm. have that level of reflection and, and media analysis in this country um except from media watch uh once once or twice a week um but yeah interesting point uh being raised around you know this is this happens all the time um I think it wasn't so much the fact that it was a poorly chosen words we, we don't have like a particularly poetic press pack uh you know they often can't string their words together well when they're when they're live uh sorry folks but the the key thing for me is that it was addressed directly to these two people who were very capable of slapping back uh and for the most part the members of our press who want to have a a fucking go at Ardern or uh, whatever other female politician, if we're talking about the misogyny angles, they do it when they're not around, when there is no right of reply, when they can just like chuck it in as a little bit of commentary. Um, a really good example from this week as well, Melissa Chan Green um, talking with John Key, uh, I think around the breakfast hour kind of stuff, um, doing some China analysis, referred to Ardern as traipsing around uh, the White House for PR uh, for a photo op. No. Like, clearly not the case. And we know that this uh, these references to Ardern as just being there for the photo um, or just trying to do stylish PR are part of misogynistic attacks on her. But it's part of the, the framework, the fabric of how she is talked about in centre-right media. Right, just as a throwaway. Like, she didn't even need to, to mention it in that way. Like, it wasn't even talked about in further. She was doing a comparison between Ardern and Key when when he was like presumably not doing PR at all somehow, but doing serious business stuff. Yeah. Um, and that's a, a consistent theme that we've seen uh from media in New Zealand, um across the board, which is if you're a man in a suit, a, a man in an ill-fitting suit, um, as Philip uh put it. You're you're gonna just get better press. You're gonna get better press than if you're a woman uh, trying to be serious on the world stage. Yeah, yeah, and I think like maybe people in general make a little too much of this, but I think there's also an element of um, uh, being kind of accustomed to siloed thinking to quite a like an uncomfortable extent. So if you listen to news talk ZB during like a you know prime time for for one hour, you will hear much more misogynistic stuff than you heard. In that question right just like, as a matter of course yeah it's, it's normalized to to people who work in certain media environments and who listen to certain media environments and live in certain media silos like you know we probably all have uh, a relative who you could talk to for 10 minutes and hear more misogynistic stuff than that yeah, i put them all down so, already, mate. so there's a <laughs> so there's a um i disinvited them from from thanksgiving so i think there's a a kind of a, a degree to which we can overly universalize values in a, in a way that's unhelpful in a pluralistic kind of media ecosystem and i'm i'm pretty in favor of kind of admitting that there's an entire side of of humans multiple sides of humans with with whom i have very little in common in terms of values and that's that's part of my society right i'm not i'm not saying that that's a different a different type of person not othering that type of person misogynistic humans right (laughs) that's fine it's a a deep-seated um trait 
that you know figures across different kind of value sets and principles across time blah 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 uh we can talk historically about how that works and colonialism and self-made man mythology and all that stuff um but the point is that we're where we are at the moment there's no point denying that this is a very common kind of thing so again i think the the upset is at rnz reading nerds like you watching thanks uh watching something with a new stalk zb journalist and being like oh no like oh, is, it, is this person doing a misogyny yes yes they are <laughs> like, there's a lot of them and they're not going to stop you know um so i think there's some kind of culture clash there that's interesting that maybe says like yeah again i think we overstate this a bit because we're all you know new zealand's not the most disaggregated society we can't live in the hamptons and not relate to the rust belt in the same way as you know the us can do but i think to some degree there's some some people's showing of their ass principally and in, in terms of like not admitting the different like types of connections between extremely different value sets right and and that was what one quick one question in a in a press pack that asked questions for however long um and not that most of the other questions were fantastic from what i've seen like maybe that's a more interesting conversation <laughs> um but as you said at the beginning kyle i think like what this really gets to is it's you know that's how kind of stagnant the the press in New Zealand seems to have become is that this is a high point. <laughs> yeah, well, it's as exciting as it gets in New Zealand media. It's been like, it's been fantastic for our doing, you know, like it, international media coverage of this now. Like, no, no, no real harm has been done um, from this one instance. And the, the folk, I, again, coming back to what you're saying, the interesting part of this is the response of the media. Um, it's been a dual response, uh, both uh, kind of soft referring to this cancel culture, um, like don't attack this this poor young, he's in his 20s, uh, journalist, uh, yada, yada. But at the same time, the, the other half, and sometimes the same people are saying, why is it all of the media's fault when one guy does this? <laughs> but you can't have it both ways. Um, you, you can't say, oh, this poor dude, uh, but it's not me. Don't, don't try and refer this back to the entire media. Um, like tacitly accepting that, this person fucked up really badly. Yeah, it's it's okay. Like he's kind of a pariah, and it's good. I'm glad it's not aimed at me. Which is just sad to see that lack of solidarity. And it comes back to that like organizing thing again. Um, like if this is a, a like an employment issue, if this person loses their job um, because of this, or if you know any media um, person loses their job for this just dumb shit, dumb shit that comes out of the environment, an environment that like promotes this um that accepts this and embraces this a lot of the time it just happened not to this specific time why are you turning on your audience why well, that's why? often that's often how you know quote unquote cancel culture works right is that like it's fine until it goes wrong so there's like there's no consistent level of principles it's it's you know i can act in a certain way and then as soon as one person gets targeted you know you don't have to run out outrun the bear you just have to outrun Joey badass, and yeah. he gets he gets eaten by the by the mob right it's it, like actively anti-solidaristic it's like accept bullying as like part and parcel of human nature to a really i think unpleasant extent but yeah that's that's the interesting that's the interesting thing right is that if you talk to a journalist any of that and all the interviews you hear with journalists about structurally about how the how the institution works how the industry works they all have like quite serious well thought out complaints about like clickbait headlines and like underfunding over decades 
and you know uh, incentives that editors have and the 24-hour news cycle and this stuff's all been like quite thought through and I haven't seen this applied at all like these are all intelligent structural critiques of the media industry and something being rushed and you know not giving someone time to write down a question in a way that wouldn't come off accurately as an implicit endorsement of a misogynistic critique right so if if that guy had had less of a you know all of the all of the previously stated pressure i think there's a good argument to say he would have had a more intelligent question right but may still have been misogynistic oh i'm sure it would have but look the levels of implicitness is what this is all about right that's why this has gone viral yeah Um, and i think like it's really key to note that you know uh stuff reporters and workers were on strike this week you know like this is they know it's an issue but the knee-jerk response of uh, a range of like really good journalists as well there are people like in my in my feed i'm like what why are you trying to make this argument um the knee-jerk response is to to. go on twitter um and circle the wagons you don't have to honestly yeah we're on your side like yeah structurally we're on your side right that's the that's the point change the change the environment under which you work and you want to right as you say on strike already like take another step you know like at what point is this Uh, like is this kind of stuff a health and safety issue as well like um there's a lot of uh, reference to like getting abuse and death threats and and yada yada um as as a journalist um and how that's not helpful yeah of course it's not but one this isn't really about that like like this is a fuck up um playing the victim around it isn't going to help um two why aren't your bosses stopping that from happening like why yeah. are you consistently in a position where you're getting death threats uh and that like and that's like an accepted part of your role as a reporter or a journalist or whatever like that's absolutely fucked and i know you have to have like dms open or whatever for leaks or yada 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 um but there there are lines there which can easily be drawn by the by the media companies yeah Uh, and they're just consistently not they're like these people are put on the front line as if they're a customer service function um and left to flounder when they make a mistake it's disgusting it makes me sick the paucity of imagination for journalists saying i get death threats every day therefore don't bully this person like i get i get that on a human level but it's it's it actively disintegrates the level of solidarity that we are able to show with the journalistic profession from the outside when you're not able to you know have a chink in that armor and go no the actually the way that this functions is because of x like this is this is the time to showcase structural problems this isn't the time to say to talk about the individual failings of joey badass um which i want to hear that's his next album i hope but that's a, i think that's a real problem like this is a, this would be an amazing way to let the public into the way that the media functions in new zealand as an aperture right you go look i I didn't ask that question and I wouldn't have asked that question. But one reason that that might've happened is um, when you work in a newsroom, there's this crazy turnaround time. There's this, you know, you don't get paid that much. You're up late at night, chasing people down for stories, blah, 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 working conditions, blah, 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 pay expectation, uh, the publish or perish equivalent, whatever they call that in, uh, in journalism. And that's an interesting story, right? Like then people are able to get on board with that as opposed to being for or against an individual. That is, yeah. you know, it's very celebrity kind of ticking down the clock until someone forgets, which is why it's going to disappear next which week. Which is also the New Zealand media model, right? It's, it's a like cycle, yeah. Try, 
try and do these these things which get lots of attention but um yeah talking about structural stuff i guess um and and the media there's a lot of stuff which they overhype um they create these narratives uh that come from very systemic structural issues within the media itself and one of those um and, and the reason we have finlay here uh this morning is crime reporting so we've seen consistent and you know this is like ongoing this is decades reporting of crime is being much worse than it is um over hyping of the numbers uh front page spreads uh constantly um about whatever a particular moral panic is uh, and that's not to say that crime isn't happening or that um there aren't victims of crime but we know for a fact that it is not commensurate with what is actually happening in reality and when these questions are put to our dern or the um, justice minister or whoever they're always having to circle back around to the fact that uh crime numbers are down um why do you keep asking me this where we're trying to do um xyz about ram raids uh, and that's kind of culminated in the last week and a half um after the tragic death of a um a dairy worker where it seems both the media uh, and the political opposition has tried to tie it to the ram raids narrative saying we've been telling you this is going to happen you know this was like this is a this is entirely the fault of the government if not directly the fault of Jacinda Ardern uh, and just back-to-back -back media coverage of this single tragedy which while horrible like horrific situation is not indicative of the state of crime in New Zealand working with uh people against uh prisons Aotearoa Finlay what has your response been to that kind of that that recent coverage both as an organization and as a um coordinator I think as an organization it's been quite concerning um especially like continued pushing for more um punitive policies um and trying to uh, undo some of the stuff that has been done and has been in some ways quite effective. Um, I mean, I know Winston Peters has been talking about bringing back the three strikes law, which would be for a lot of reasons, a terrible idea. And I think trying to find a way to counter it because it's ramped up so much in the last, probably the last year. I mean, there's always been tough on crime stuff and how, you know, the government's soft on crime or whatever, but it's just seems to be getting more and more prominent. And I think a lot of it is about like the election it's an easy way to for both parties to use this kind of idea of crime and safety and how we can you know solve all these problems to win an election um, I mean national are pushing for it really hard Labour pushed for it quite a lot in the 90s I mean even Labour have been criticizing national for having low police numbers and that sort of thing and how they've increased the number of police on the streets as kind of a sign that they are more tough on crime than um national is and I think it's just going to lead to more people interacting with police and more people being hurt by police more people on the criminal justice system and all of that ultimately ends up with more people committing crimes and more people being hurt and it doesn't really it, it's not productive in any way there's a lot of research around crime um and offending and what causes it and yeah, more punitive policies, more longer, harsher prison sentences doesn't stop anyone committing crimes. It doesn't 
really protect anyone. I think for some people feels good to know that like oh, these people who are doing bad things, having bad things happen, but it's never going to stop those bad things happening or yeah, reduce it at all. This is one of the things which has been really sad, I guess. Uh, I was going to say interesting, um, but it's not really interesting. Um, is you've even got, you know, victims of crime in, in the media. So they are getting stories. It's just one out of 20 uh, saying, no, look, putting kids in boot camps isn't going to solve <laughs> this. Like, this isn't the way forward. I don't support this plan. Like, being tougher on, like, the people who are being impacted know that this is the case. You've got other people saying, look, can we just get some support for the victims? Stop, like... <laughs> putting people in camps or like using electronic bracelets or putting people in prison even uh some people are, are saying um they they know that the issue isn't how hard we're punishing people but that rhetoric being pushed by a mainstream party um in the form of national and and the outriders leads to the the actual outliers now talking about um the death penalty again like you're, you're seeing that into the discourse because the mainstream discourse is coming so far right wing. Mm, yeah. I mean, I've seen, I mean, I guess I probably don't check the news as much as some people, but I have seen one article in terms of, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but like the police pursuits that have interviewed people who have family who have been killed in police pursuits. You know, like people who have been really affected by this policy that is going to change don't seem to have been really part of the conversation at all. It's just police saying unsatisfying, I guess, in a way, and that, like, offenders are getting away, whereas, like, people who have had loved ones die, whether or not they were in the car, are kind of sidelined in the story because it's not really what... It's not really helpful if you want people to... If we want high-speed police pursuits, it's not helpful to talk to people who have been affected by them. And this, is, this is a thing, right? Like, who are you asking the questions of? Yeah. What, what are you, what outcome are you trying to have? Uh, both at a, on a criminal justice level and, uh, you know, on a societal level, um, or as like a member of the media, what are you, what are you trying to create? How, what view do you have about the way media have been framing this, increasingly framing this over the, over the last year? Is there a clear picture around what outcomes they're trying to get, in your opinion? I think it does vary a little bit from um, different journalists and different kind of media outlets. I think the picture from um, Māori journalism is quite different to a lot of mainstream, um, like uh, NZ Herald kind of stuff uh, reporting. Is like there is a difference there. There's always some stuff that comes through that's really good. Um, there was a few opinion pieces and stuff with Jared Gilbert about rushed tough and current policies and how they don't really get results or um, do much other than kind of push this panic. I think generally, though, it seems kind of connected. I don't know that this is necessarily the view of Papa, but like for me, it seems connected to the way that the media has really I don't know, it's like simplistic to say like turned on labor, but like it's coming at the same time as the way the reporting on COVID has changed quite a lot. And sort of it seems like suddenly everything that the government are doing is like criticized quite heavily. And I think that really focusing on, particularly with RAM raids, like one very specific form of venting that has increased pretty significantly and is also 
if you're trying to sell papers or sell news stories, like it's very dramatic. You've got a car that's like run into a dairy. Like it's a big, it's a good story, I guess, if that's what you're trying to do. But yeah, this kind of panic around youth offending that really isn't based in like the reality. Like crime statistics are quite flawed, but like there's no evidence to suggest that suddenly crime is on the rise um, and that we're all in danger and that everybody's scared to walk through cities and stuff like that. There was an article recently about uh, talking to business owners in Christchurch saying that, you know, this central city in Christchurch is empty and everyone's scared to walk through town. But, like, it's busy. It's always busy. There's people everywhere. Like, it's nice. It feels like a proper city again. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's very based on kind of individuals' perceptions, which can be used for whatever, really, um, whatever their goals are. I think for a lot of business owners, it's about, you know, cleaning up the streets and like probably trying to like hide away homelessness and um, poverty and other like social problems that, you know, some of the things that cause crime, but obviously nobody in media at least seems to be pushing for us to target. Yeah, making sure that everybody has a home or everybody has enough money to live. Um, that's kind of less of a concern than like school attendance, which is you know, still effective, but yeah, I think yeah, like, it's complex. One thing we, we definitely know is that the threat of punishment does not stop crime. Oh. <laughs> that, that is, that's just like a, a given. Um, yeah. And despite that, just getting increasingly outlandish opinions and um, suggestions on, on what to do about this, on how to be harder on crime. Mm. And it just completely subsumates any uh, chance to talk about the causes of crime and how do we how do we get to the point where people don't need to commit crime in the first place this is horrible um but years and years and years ago i remember being at like a, a crime justice uh lecture and for whatever reason oh it was like cross cross party um or, or cross view thing and stephen franks was there like uh, arch X act party far i'd say he's far right uh conservative uh and he he got up on the stage and he with absolute seriousness um said that his view was people commit crime for the thrill and no other reason that's why we need punishment because nothing else will stop them it's like a, a character flaw there, there's no there's no uh, systemic reason uh for crime to cause people just enjoy it they get off on it um, and every, like the entire lecture said, it was like, what the fuck? And there was like large pushback from the other speakers. I think even, even Garth McBickle was like, I don't think that's right, mate. <laughs> you know, like, but that, it feels like there's this like proportion of our, our media and our politicians who believe that very, very strongly. Mm -hmm. And are just not going to be swayed on in, in any uh, useful way. But how do we, how do we start talking about like, the causes of crime and getting cut through on that because it is it is more complex it is harder to do how do we get it to a point where even cynically that's the thing that's selling papers yeah i think that's probably quite difficult to do um and it's kind of a long-term project i guess the fact that act on oh, act national um suggested like military boot camps for youth offenders at all is like kind of a like represents the state that we're in 
like that's something that was thrown out quite a long time ago because it's awful and because and, they tried it and it didn't work yeah but it's sort of back trying to bring up this stuff um i think in terms of like i think part of it is really just like talking to people that you know about it and like trying to shift that so that it there is kind of more pushback i guess it's also quite easy i think to fall into stuff like debunking which in terms of general messaging isn't great it's like real fun to do <laughs> <laughs> it feels great but like it doesn't really kind of change people's ideas i guess um and yeah i know just speak has done quite a bit of research into like how do we actually talk about crime and change the narrative of crime and a lot of it is really focusing on like people's values and like pragmatic approaches and to an extent i mean it yeah i mean i guess it depends on the individual everyone has different values but um kind of like compassion and like we actually want everybody to be safe and well and not feel like they have to you know engage in dangerous or harmful behavior to like survive um and yeah trying to shift the narrative i guess away from um the kind of things that really play into uh like fear and that sort of thing because people don't make good decisions when they're scared and i think i know like a lot of the dairy owners and things we've been talking about like how we need tougher policies and i think it's quite human in a way to be you know like it was a horrible thing that happened it should never have happened and it's easy to fall back on kind of something that's going to immediately make you feel safe but it's not going to stop it happening again and we need to find other ways yeah exactly um to crib from um parks and recreation i'm i'm against violence so i'm not afraid to admit it like there's a there's i suppose a a, a sort of a contingent like as as kyle said it's 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 clear to us as overly academic left of center kind of nerds that <laughs> the relationship between speak yourself please philip oh i wouldn't I, it's not me i'm talking about you too i'm a centrist but <laughs> I'm, a centrist I, I'm a centrist and i love it but there's a there's a it's clear to us that the relationship between punishment and decisions to make crimes is you know not if it exists it's not coherent like there's no clear uh correlation between those two things um but i don't think that's clear to most people like mm. news talk zb for example to go back to you know the old hobby horse it is not at all on that bandwagon um thus still saying the the reason that people do crimes is that they know they'll get away with it quote unquote mm. that's the kind of that's the discourse around uh violent robberies so you know that doesn't obviously comport with any stats because violent robberies are down uh, violent theft is down i should say mm. um armed, armed uh robberies are down but burglaries are up right so the there, there is more stuff getting stolen from small businesses mm. depending on how you you know depending on as you say finlay like these stats are inherently flawed for a bunch of reasons the metrics are pretty dodgy but like post uh post ram raids post these 70 kids in new zealand deciding that mm. they have nothing going on in their life other than driving cars into um into dairies for example there has been like an increase in stuff being taken but the mm. amount of armed robberies has actually decreased in the last five years you know, again depending on how you measure it blah 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 
but it's not a it's not a clear kind of correlation but but these people don't care about stats right like fundamentally this comes down to perception of danger perception of safety versus crime and it's not about crime like that's the problem is that this conversation about crime and justice and punishment isn't about that at all it's about how secure these people feel in their in their lives and you know to the extent that you have to be sympathetic it's that these dairy owners feel unsafe and the reason they feel unsafe is a host of reasons and that manifests when they see one thing on the media that's one person being tragically killed which happens all the time like i'm not a fan of of killing like as i say i think Mm. in general being killed for doing nothing wrong sucks a lot we can all being killed for doing something wrong though kind of condemn that yeah so i think there's a there's like a fundamental mismatch in 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 principles and values there and as you were saying finlay like the the interesting kind of narrative and uh i guess political psychology part of it is that there's a way to reach out to the traditional kind of tough on crime conservators about this stuff and it's not debunking like saying crime is down isn't going to make these people feel good because they feel like it's up right it's about feels and vibes it's all about vibes to them yeah Um, it's about their feelings it's not about facts so like to to remedy that we need to create a sense of community stronger than that sense of doubt the the you know I'm not a Jonathan Haidt guy but his kind of conception of um conservatism as small in-group big out-group versus liberalism as big in-group small out-group I think works in some ways here where you can go what makes that person so fundamentally different from you that you can't see that as part of your in-group like that's the border that you need to break down with community building stuff right that's why like real life community building is so much more important than online kind of (laughs) hate mongering and hashtag using the I've seen a couple of comments from people who work in dairies who feel scared and I think that is way more important than people who own the dairies to the Mm -hmm. extent that you can you know divide up small businesses by owner and employee which isn't always a clear distinction there are people who feel scared and work in those workplaces but have more in common with the people coming in and stealing stuff than they Mm -hmm. do with their boss right exploited often migrant labor um people with really important kind of employment issues that who are often being like really badly exploited at the thin end of that kind of quite cruel wedge of New Zealand employment law Mm. and those are the people we should be foregrounding like if you can get that person to talk rather than someone who owns eight dairies and will put on a suit and you know isn't at the front line by any extent but is happy to make political hay out of the stuff Mm. like that changes the conversation quite a bit I think yeah it's something which um Again, I guess it's just not an interesting thing for the media to cover or whatever. I've tweeted about a little bit. This is predominantly uh, an issue with the way our communities are designed as much as anything else. Why are these places being targeted? Um, What makes them good targets? We have this gap uh, in, I guess, supermarket retail where you end up with these isolated buildings in the middle of dark suburbs that you know, don't like have a few houses around them and everyone gets in their cars and, and drives to the city. You need distributed points to buy stuff, right? Like you need yeah. the next whatever commercial and buying stuff. So the rest of the but infrastructure like, isn't there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like if it if it's if the dairy is part of a village that is, you know, in, in both the, the infrastructure and uh, metaphorical sense, I suppose, lives as a community, that's much better. That's why community building is part of this, right? Mm-hmm. And like the, the libertarian right 
will I don't know if they have yet, but I guarantee we'll start making this about the values, the market values of the things in the dairies. I've had COVID for the last week. I'm sorry if this is already in the narrative and I've missed it, but it'll be about uh, taxes on cigarettes will be what ACT will talk about, right? Because the more that tax on cigarettes goes up, the higher the, the value of those things, the more street value you can get for stealing those things. That's yeah. the market reason for increasing incentive to do crimes, right? And there is there is some like data to suggest that, uh, especially in especially mid twenty tens, the number of dairy again not armed, not armed burglaries so much, uh, not armed robberies so much, but but burglaries went up because if you can smash a window and steal like a grand's worth of cigarettes and put them in one garbage bag, that's pretty. That's a pretty profitable haul, right? That's that's pretty like yeah articulable. But that's, again, that's not about punishment. Increasing punishment for that doesn't necessarily mean that that's how you drive that. It's just that a higher risk. Down. It's a higher risk mm. for them to do it. And that's it. Like, yeah. Now they're going to take more cigarettes. Like, it, it takes more cigarettes to even that out. Humans don't think, as Finlay said, like humans don't think in that way where before you do a thing, you, you know, mathematically calculate like the fucking matrix, <laughs> every, every for and against argument for that thing. If you think they do, come on, think about yourself for five seconds. When have you ever done that? Yeah, dude, I'm, uh, I've generalized anxiety. Uh, so <laughs> just constantly, constantly, bro. But that's the thing, right? And, and we're not talking about community building. We're not talking about what support can be given to dairies. There's this fog cannon stuff now um, as a deterrent. Uh, but it's so much more than that. And, you know, like, if we're thinking in that frame, the end result of this is that people just get out of the dairy business. Um, we lose a whole bunch of small businesses um, that serve their communities directly. Uh, mm -hmm. We lose a whole lot of independence in the supermarket industry, as, as little as we have there um, currently. And it all heads to the, to the big box kind of retail solutions instead, who can afford mm -hmm. to have security guards and, like, proper um, parking lots, you know, and and who can write off this stuff um, when they do get burglarized uh, a lot more easily. So yeah, obviously something needs to be done about this, but if you're asking what, what, is, the, what is the outcome here, the, the answers go in completely different directions. Mm. Um, oh yeah, sorry. Like as long as, you know, stuff like poverty and inequality is increasing, like, because you're going to have more and more desperate people who have no way to get enough money to live because the government, like, will not uh, guarantee that. And obviously, we all have to lose our jobs because of the economy. So, <laughs> like, we need less people working, more people in poverty, so that we can have this kind of magical number system going on. And still, like, people still need to survive, like, people need to feed their kids like people aren't just going to be like oh well you know i guess i'm willing to sacrifice myself for you know capitalism to keep doing its thing so i'm not going to do anything <laughs> like people are desperate and so they're making desperate choices and if you actually wanted to stop it you would be trying to get people out of those situations and there's an interview with a dairy owner just this week um which was uplifting and heartbreaking where he was talking about getting like being shoplifted so just someone walking in taking stuff mm. and walking out uh, and he's saying look like if that person had just told me that they needed help i can do i can help them mm. like you don't you don't need to take it um because they the, those values are there you yeah. know they those values exist and the right the right wing um opportunists are trying to drive a wedge on those values mm. 
Um, and it's cynical and it's gross. Um, and it gets us to a bad place really, really quickly. And I just wanted to, to quickly touch on um, the last bit, which was high-speed pursuits, which you um, alluded to before. Are you able to give us a quick rundown on what Costa is talking about um, and, and why this is happening? All right. So in, I don't know how much background we need, but in 2020, the police pursuit policy changed so that police could only justify a pursuit if there was a threat from the people driving prior to the pursuit starting um, and ultimately stopping police pursuing often at high speeds, largely stolen cars or people who are driving dangerously. And it is, there's a lot of different, um, particularly Australia, quite a few states have a policy similar to this where they don't have um, police pursuits unless there is a genuine kind of immediate threat. Whereas New Zealand prior to 2020, um, our police would uh, pursue fleeing drivers at high speeds and ultimately drive the cars faster into doing, you know, more dangerous driving at higher speeds, usually out of panic, and ultimately resulting in a lot of crashes and a lot of people dying and being injured. The ram raids seem to be a pretty big part of this. Um, so the police have been kind of reviewing this policy and yeah, the police commissioner said this week that after the spike in ram raids and violence, they're going to be, yeah, reviewing and adjusting this policy, um, which I guess we're talking about stuff like ram raids is like the media kind of feeds into this and the way that like business owners have been kind of calling out for more help and Nationals' approach to this as well has really been blaming kind of soft on crime stuff. And so they're looking at changing this policy again. There's... I believe they're looking at tweaking it a little um, rather than completely getting rid of it. But they're trying to, Andrew Gloucester has called it, striking a balance um, between, I guess, what was happening before when, um, you know, in the decade before the change, 60 people were killed in police pursuits. Um, and what and not all now, people being pursued, right? Sometimes no, they were bystanders. No. Yeah. And sometimes they were, like, people in the car who were not driving and who were trying to get a driver to stop, you know, like, there's a lot of different people involved and many of them in the cars have been children um, and kids but yeah there is sort of an interesting and very concerning quote from Costa that um, the 10 years before the policy change we killed 60 people through police pursuits no one has died in a police pursuit since we changed the policy but obviously there is a balance and so the balance seems to be you don't kill people or cars aren't found until later like it's yeah it, it's trying to paint the sensible position as being the one where like okay we don't find we maybe these people we don't catch them or later we find a car burning on the side of the road somewhere versus you know six people dying a year and really being killed every year it's that is that is wild. I hadn't yeah. seen that, that quote but like that is insane. Yeah. Um <laughs> and really like tips the the balance because all that i'd all that i'd seen was that uh i guess does that mean hang on so is the implication that andrew costa is saying is that more people are not being caught now that they're not changing is that what his concern yeah. is okay. yeah that people aren't being caught um that they're not finding offenders because part of the um argument that they'd made initially for when they kind of acceded 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 i don't know how to pronounce that word um to the request or the idea of um 
toning down the number of police chases was that they'd be able to find those people anyway, you yeah. know, through surveillance or helicopters or um, other methods of tracking. So has that not panned out? What's I, Do you have any idea what's going on there? I don't know if that's panned out exactly. Um, that's interesting because if you can quantify the number of deaths that has changed from, you mm. know, as you say, six a year down to zero a year. 60, that, oh, 60, 60 a year. year down to zero a year that mm. seems like quite a quite a burden to overcome by reevaluating that right that's yeah you would hope that that would weigh quite heavily into that decision again you know absent any other information i'm mostly in favor of being alive i think being alive is pretty cool as a, as um, a centrist fellow how do you yeah, feel about the use of striking Three, a balance there a year sounds like the right number to me um but three a year and half as many arrests as a yeah. centrist um but it is it's that's fucking concerning like the fact that you could take that clear statistical difference and say mm, this isn't quite hitting it for us right yeah it's i don't know specifically about what's happened here i know that in australia in particular um i think in tasmania in 1999 they stopped their they changed their policy to ban police pursuits. And initially, it seems like really wherever this has happened, um, the police are generally pretty against it. Often after a couple of years, like it really doesn't make much difference. I don't believe there was any real increase in Australia where they've done this. Um, I know that, I mean, I hate to be like quoting the FBI, but a 2010 report they had said that there's like very few negative consequences generally when people realize that they're not being chased, they slow down um, to normal speeds and they're much less of a risk. They've also, it's not necessarily that you're giving in to offenders as much as like finding other ways. I mean, a lot of the time, you know, you're like, if you have the number plate, like as long as they own the car, that's pretty good. Again, if you break off the pursuit, you know, usually it doesn't take long for people to slow down and you can kind of continue. Maybe you take a different route. I don't know. But like it doesn't, at least from overseas, when this has happened, it really hasn't had that same effect. Like it hasn't meant that suddenly everyone keeps driving really fast and they get away and police never catch them. Yeah, it really doesn't have a huge effect on whether or not, yeah, people aren't stealing more cars because police aren't pursuing them anymore. People aren't driving less dangerously or less likely to drive drunk because police aren't going to chase them up to 140 kilometers an hour anymore yeah um, yeah exactly it's that's interesting right it's a it's almost like there's been this um this ledger that they've been been looking down going uh okay well if we're causing this if we're causing you know for a given value of causing um yeah this many this many deaths by pursuing this policy if we were to not pursue this policy we would not cause this many deaths so I would like to see some kind of transparency around mm. how they decided that zero, you know, w what number of people arrested is enough to miss out on before a death is justified, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think that would be interesting to see how, yeah. they, how they decided that what we currently have isn't good enough, if the, if that's what's currently happening. If if the the converse has been that arrests have decreased of people in cars, which presumably is what Andrew Costa means when he says yeah. that, but we have zero deaths then is zero deaths still even the goal? Like, I would like them to say that at least. Um, yeah. If there's going to be some kind of third way, 
to have the best of and to be clear about when we're talking about not pursuing there are situations in which the cops will 100 percent still pursue people like if if they're causing imminent danger to be if you if, yeah if you're speeding over the harbor bridge uh with a gun and a hostage like don't worry you're still gonna get pursued <laughs> um, yeah it's, we're talking about it's not like no pursuits ever it's like you can't pursue someone unless there is like a really justifiable reason for you to be driving that yeah. fast and pushing the other driver to go that fast like there is obviously like some responsibility on the people driving the car but if you as a police officer have a choice between them fleeing at the speed limit and them fleeing at 140 kilometers an hour which was the previous limit um for them to break off chases like i mean the speed limit's better right like it's better if they're not going that fast the consequences aren't as bad if, um, if, if the speed limit for the for the cops is 140, I would simply drive at 141. Well, exactly. An hour yeah. And an out. That's just uh, yeah. It's it's yeah. kind of it's amazing, right? Magic with magic with numbers. That's mm. a kind of like uh, auditing of of life, depressingly. So, what's the response to this? What like is there even any anything that can be done about this? What this is an, this is an operational matter, I imagine. Um, Probably. <laughs> Yep, um, which is funny because they call it a pursuit policy. So I think there's a strong argument that it is in fact a policy. I think that it's something that will need to be pushed against. It's something that people were campaigning for a long time before it changed. Um, and I think it would be good to kind of strike that back up again. We had several years where no one was killed as a result of police pursuits, which is awesome. Like, that's great. That's kind of the goal for like community safety. And like, is in terms of policing like if their goal is safety then that would logically be what they're trying to do as opposed to kind of preventing um what is often like a property crime but just still no one wants to have their car stolen yeah like you were saying before philip like how many like how many arrests and how many like stolen cars captured is like my life worth you know like how many it's you don't really want to think about it in those numbers i mean even if you think about it in those numbers what if you kill a future policeman exactly (laughs) because they could they could catch so many criminals and get so many cars cars back yeah yeah and just just something to think about um andrew costa if you listen to this i think we talk about the thrill of it like there's an extent to which like the discussion of this has been about like how unsatisfying it is for police officers to let people get away and this Uh is something that was like spoken about in like the states and stuff as well um i was reading an article earlier talking about how initially like the first couple of years after one of the states in australia did it the police were really against it until you started having these new police officers come in who had never chased someone in a high pursuit police chase and they never had that feeling of like i don't know like there is kind of an adrenaline rush to that which isn't isn't to say that i guess it's always about that but you know police officers have i think there's sort of questions around like that decision making and like are you choosing to pursue this person because it is the most logical thing to do or are you choosing to pursue this person because of like where your headspace is and like what kind of emotionally feels like the most satisfying thing to do do which is not really a good way to them to be i guess designing police policy yeah which is why we have policy in the first place right yeah yeah just to, to get around that stuff to yeah to ensure that 
we're, we're following a set of rules that stop us from doing things which are bad decisions. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what discretion, like this is the danger of police discretion or discretion <laughs> in any, you know, people make this too police specific. I think like humans don't make rational decisions every hour of every day. That's why people most humans. Uh, steal stuff without thinking about, you know, if I steal another ca- carton of cigarettes, will I get another year in prison? Maybe just keep it to 29 pack cartons of cigarettes. It's like, that's not how people think. And in the same way, cops chasing someone who they feel is trying to kind of mm. get something over on them yeah are going to break whatever you know internal logic they have and in- internal kind of ethics they have of course you are like again mm. put yourself in their in their shoes i would 100 percent chase someone down who i you know i feel my job is to protect the community or whatever this person did something that i see as impinging on that kind of you know behavior i'm going to chase that person down and i've been trained in an environment blah 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 where you get this kind of pack mentality Mm. and of course you're going to try to push the limit that's why we need limits like that's what these policies are for right yeah so that you look at your speedo and you go oh 140 the law says i'm going to get in trouble if i go over that and then you go okay well this person isn't actually posing any imminent danger i'm going to peel away it's not my fault basically right otherwise it a little bit is your fault in your mind you know if you if you try to chase someone and you don't you don't succeed in getting them you get back to the station and all the other all the other uh, cops there are like, oh, why didn't you catch this guy? You should have simply um, done a Jason Statham um, and sped sped past him and you know thrown a grenade in the window or whatever. And stuck then, a, a battery pack on your tongue. <laughs> not that Jason Statham. Um, yeah, you know you you can you can understand it. That's what these policies are for. And hmm. the, it's and there's that as you say, there's that kind of um, uh, like release or like jouissance, maybe like you know the your your brain is firing at, at full at full pace of course you're going to act in a way that in a kind of sober moment of reflection you wouldn't you wouldn't do again that's why we need these limitations and i i think it's it's always like one of those moments where it kind of i guess to me at least like indicates like what is the actual purpose of the police and how come preventing success a year is not in and of itself worth whatever the consequences of this are especially because like generally these aren't people who then go on to commit violent crimes. That's not why they're being chased. And so, like, if the priority is about stolen property, like, then that's what the police function to do in this country. And that's pretty concerning. <laughs> um, and, you know, like, I, I believe that that's what they're here to do. But, like, it's one way that you can kind of use, like, it's a very clear example of how like the function isn't actually to oh we don't have seven protect what is it here like safe communities together like the safer community isn't the goal in a lot of these situations and we need to like that should always be the goal to yeah like prevent and reduce harm and to keep people safe and the current policy is a step towards doing that and anything really to bring back pursuits is going to undermine that yeah exactly like if, if there is uh, a ratio at which they're happy to, tra- to trade uh, life for property, mm. then they should tell us, right? If they don't want safer communities together, yeah. as, as it says on the label, they should tell us to what degree they're willing to sacrifice that to achieve people who currently own property continuing to own the same amount of property that yeah. they own. <laughs> you know? um, if, that, if, that's, you know, if that's what you get when you open the tin, then it'll be nice to know what what the function of that of that actually is and i think it's um it, that's kind of instructive right because that underpins a lot of what the cops actually do as you say like mm. what what they say the purpose of the cops is isn't isn't 
how it ends up. And if that if that functional transformation isn't what they say they're there for, then they should tell us that, you know, and we should keep asking questions until we find that out. Yeah, like bring it out into the open and be like, okay, so like what actually is happening and like not trying to, I guess, cover it with... Virtue signaling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, I think, I think there's kind of a note of, of hope here though, right? Because like we're in a better position about these issues than we were 15 years ago, say. Mm-hmm. Um, like the the consensus around dissuading um, criminals by, you know, simply increasing their their time in prison has broken down to some extent. Um, as Kyle was saying, like that kind of the Stephen Franks, Garth Mc, even Garth McVicker kind of perspective, I think that is looked on more skeptically now, at least by kind of mainstream and establishment mm-hmm. media circles than it was. Yeah, certainly 15 years ago, maybe even five years ago. I think yeah, there's I mean, been some kind of travel in the right direction. Luxon did get somewhat rinsed for his ridiculous mm. boot camp he did. policy. Yeah. You know, like... Yeah, that Which is may, great. That, he, would, that, he wouldn't have in the genuinely 2000s, didn't have late 2000s. Under Key, like, because they yeah. did the policy. You know, yeah. they did it. And Key um, was still seen as like a lib, like... Still is still centrist. seen. Yeah. So yeah. If, if, someone, if someone like that can come out with a policy and, you know, Nicola Willison... Eric Stanford look like visibly uncomfortable defending it, which, you know, it's not a not an ethical point. They shouldn't be defending it. But that's I think we've come to a place where we weren't 10, 15 years ago. And I think that's great. Take the and win. like <laughs> we it's already nice. did we did win this, right? Yeah. Like exactly. we exactly. won it and they're trying to undermine it. And we already kind of have a blueprint for what to do. Yeah. I mean, we pretty successfully told the cops to fuck off and they said they wanted underspawned scenes. And like we can continue doing that. Yeah, that's a great comparison. That was a huge win, right? Yeah. Fantastic. Hey, let's wrap it there. Thank you so much for joining us, Finlay. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I will pop the uh, URL for people against prisons Aotearoa in the summary if you want to check out what they are up to uh, in that space. Um, See what all the latest press releases are and and the discourse um, about criminal justice and incarceration. Uh, that's been another week of one two hundred. Um, after a an illness enforced break last week, uh, <laughs> give us a share. We need our um, what were our type of listeners called? Philip? Enthusiasts. Yeah, we need all our enthusiasts to um, help us to regain our podcast uh, ranking. Uh, now that we're back, um, give us a share. Give us five stars. Uh, leave a comment. Um, let Philip know. He's your favorite co-host, um, etc. We'll catch you no, next week, please hopefully. Don't, please don't do that. See, he says <laughs> that, but he loves it. Um, we'll catch you next week. Uh, have a good early December. Relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams. It's the lie aspirational. Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your